with family this morning. And uh, first sermon, but yes, not the first time I've been up here. But I, I thought I'd give you a little bit of a background. One of my fondest memories is of being a kid traveling around in that old brown Oldsmobile station wagon. And we actually, all five of us, piled into that thing and drove across country from Michigan to California. And of course, as the youngest, I got stuck in the middle. And I have a really fond memory of going to the Grand Canyon and refusing to get out of the car to see the beauty of the Grand Canyon because I was stuck in the middle. So I thought, well, I'm just going to stay here and fume. And uh, that worked out really well for me. So uh, <laughs> I also have lots of memories of throwing up in nearly every national park as we meandered through all the curvy roads. And uh, my poor family, we must have cleaned that station wagon a lot of times. But because I was the youngest, again, I was always stuck in the middle like poor Cindy and Bobby, right from the Brady Bunch, always stuck in the middle because you're the youngest kid. Well, uh, it was my permanent seat. I never got to enjoy the nice, fresh air blowing in me on the windows or the front seat. I always got stuck in the middle. And this morning, we're actually going to take a look at a woman who was also stuck in the middle of something far worse than a long road trip with a barf bag in hand. <laughs> we're going to take a look at the life of Esther and the way that she was stuck in the middle and responded to that situation in her own life. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Esther chapter 7 and hold that open to you as I tell the story of Esther. We'll eventually get there, but why don't you pray with me? God, we are so grateful to be gathered as your people this morning. And Spirit of God, we simply want to say we want to learn from you. So come and teach us what it is that you want to give to us this morning. We offer our hearts in openness to your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the book of Esther is set in the Persian Empire, and this is after the people had been taken away and taken captive. This is a few generations later, and there are some that have stayed in that area in response to the words of Jeremiah, which was to build houses and live in them, to plant gardens and eat what they produce. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in your welfare you will find your welfare. And the, this is a story of a family who was seeking the welfare of the city. They were exiles, a part of the diaspora, the, the Israel kind of spreading. But uh, they had been committed to a life of Judaism. We're introduced to Mordecai, who's a Benjaminite, and his adopted daughter, Esther. We are also introduced to a very powerful king, King Ahasuerus, and he has reign over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. His reign is massive. And he is a guy who likes to have a good time. He throws an extravagant banquet for all of his officials and leaders of the land. And in fact, it is a, a party that lasts for 180 days or six months. I mean, come on, that is a really long party. And if that wasn't enough, he throws another seven-day banquet for all the citizens of Susa to enjoy themselves. And enjoy themselves they do. They are, uh, they are given couches of gold and silver, and there's a mosaic of fine gems and stones that they walk upon. 
And, you know, I used to do campus ministry out at UCSB. I worked for 10 years with InterVarsity out at UCSB. And I'm telling you, UCSB students know how to throw a really great party. But they couldn't hold a candle to this one. They were drinking out of golden goblets, having wine by the flagon. And King Ahasuerus, you know, he has plenty to drink himself. And as he's enjoyed all of this wine, he decides that he wants to show off his wife, Queen Vashti. And so he sends for her to display her in front of everyone to show off how beautiful his wife is. Well, she refuses to come. And he is enraged. He seeks the advice of the sages, and he says, what do I do? My wife isn't willing to come. And they say to him, well, in case other women in the province get word of this, you better shut this thing down right now. And so they say, you should take that crown off of her head, put her into jail, and find yourself a new queen. And that is exactly what Ahasuerus does. And so he decrees that virgins from all of his provinces, 127 of them, be found and gathered, or taken, if you will, from their homes, to be brought to the palace for his pleasure. And so they are also then um, treated, if you will, to cosmetic treatments. There's a whole year of treatments that they receive. Six months of oil and myrrh, and then six months of perfume and cosmetics. Isn't that so thoughtful? Well, one by one, each girl... And they are designated by the text as girls. They're young. Each one is prepared, and each one is sent one by one into the king for his pleasure. They're forced to sleep with him, and they become a permanent member of his concubines, of his harem. Well, today we would describe this horrific horrific practice as forced sex slavery. It's not so glamorous when we read about it. Young girls are taken from their home. They're groomed, sometimes for years at a time. They're sold to rich men who deflower them. And then they live a life of concubine status. Well, that's what Esther walks into. But the story stops at chapter 2, verse 5, when we read about a Jew in the citadel of Susa whose name was Mordecai. And he has an adopted daughter named Esther. But there's beauty here because this isn't just any girl. She is the daughter of Abihail, and her Jewish name is Hadassah. She has a name. She has an identity. She's one of God's chosen ones. And yet she is also fair and beautiful, and this Jewish girl who is already in a foreign land, held captive by oppressors, is gathered and taken into the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. She undergoes the treatments, She doesn't tell that she's a Jew because her father is afraid for her safety. And she quickly wins the favor of both her captor as well as the king. And she is made queen in the place of Vashti. And she is given great power and privilege. And once again, the king does what he does best. He throws a party, the banquet of Esther. Well, here we come with the the evil moment in our text where we're introduced to Haman the Agagite. Now, Haman is the second in command of all of the kingdom. And he likes this position of authority and power. Don't we all, when we're given one, 
Well, he's given power, and he comes every time he walks by. All the king's servants, they bow down before the great and mighty Haman. But Mordecai, the Jew, refuses to bow. And this just irks Haman. He can't handle it. But he doesn't want it to be so beneath him that he only takes on one man. He decides to take on the whole group of Jews. And so he begins an extermination plan where he meets with the king and he convinces him that the Jews don't obey the law of the land. He says to the king, there's a certain people that are scattered and separated among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. And they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. And he convinces the king to issue an edict for all the 127 provinces that they would destroy, kill, and annihilate. And that phrase is used three times in the book. All Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, and to plunder their goods. Well, if you're like me, the first image that comes to your mind, of course, is what ended up happening years later in the Holocaust. But I want to pause here for a moment because the reality is that we want to make Haman so other that he's just a crazy pre-Hitler, right? He's just one of those people that is a little bit over the top. Just because one Jew wouldn't bow, why would you kill them all? But the problem is that deep down inside of us, we actually can see some of this in our own culture and city. Listen as I translate this to our modern-day context. And I have in mind here people from all different types of cities, people of different languages and nationalities in our own country. Haman says they're scattered and separated among people in all the provinces. And we, in our time and day, say... Those people are everywhere. We're no longer the majority in this city because they have taken over everywhere. Haman says, their laws are different and they do not keep the king's laws. And we find ourselves in our culture saying, those people don't follow our laws. They don't have the decency of speaking our language or celebrating our holidays. How can we tolerate them? Haman says to the king, so it's not appropriate for the king to tolerate them. And we, in our time, say we should put them in jail or we should send them back to where they came from or, as some have recently advocated, we should use hunters and helicopters to kill those people who we liken to feral hogs who should not be tolerated. It's sad for me to admit that I have some of Haman's evilness residing in my own heart at times. And without the grace and kindness and the love of God, I would have a lot more. Well, Haman issues this extermination decree. It's sent out by couriers into every part of the land. And the king and Haman sit down for a drink while the city is thrown into confusion. And I like this book because there's a lot of satire. And we're supposed to muse that the city, Jews and Gentiles alike, are thrown into confusion while the king and Haman just have a great time sitting down and having a drink after issuing a decree to kill and annihilate a group of people. Well, Mordecai hears of this decree, and his response is a Jewish response. He tears his clothes, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes, and he walks around the city 
weeping and wailing on behalf of his people. Esther hasn't heard of this decree, and she sees him, and she's troubled. What is he doing? Why does he have on sackcloth and ashes? And she sends someone out of the the palace to go and find out what's going on. And Mordecai tells the messenger all that has happened. And he says to the messenger, tell Esther that she needs to go to the king and ask for mercy for her people. And she sends the messenger back and she says, but wait a second. If I go to the king and I haven't been bid to go, I will die. It's only if the king extends his golden scepter that I will be given mercy. And he says this in response to her. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. But you and your father's family, oh, by the way, that's me, your father, will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you've come to royal dignity for such a time as this. Then Esther said a reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do, and after that I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai acknowledges that there's responsibility for Esther, and she takes on the mantle of that responsibility. She acknowledges that there's a possibility, a very strong possibility, that she will die. But the reality is she's going to die either way. If she remains silent, she will die. And potentially, if she says something, she will die. But she says to Mordecai, if I perish, I perish. And she fasts, and she prays, and she faces death. And she goes to the king, and he extends his golden scepter, and she wins his favor. And he says, what is it? What is it, Queen Esther? What can I do for you? I want to give to you up to half of my kingdom. Just tell me. Well, she knows the king really well, and she knows Haman really well. And what does she know? That these guys like a good party. And so she throws not one banquet, but two banquets. At the second banquet, we find our lectionary text. Esther 7, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, now is that time. Esther 7, 1 through 6, and 9 through 10. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have won your favor, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me, that is my petition, and the lives of my people, that is my request. For we've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we'd been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have held my peace. But no enemy can compensate for this damage to the king. How smart is this woman? She appeals to his economic sensibilities. (laughs) Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has presumed to do this? Again, dripping with irony. The king is the one who issued this edict, didn't he? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. 
And Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Look, the very gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, his revenge, stands at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, and the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the anger of the king abated. Well, we see what happens to Haman, and we would all say he got what was coming to him. He was hanged on the own, his own thing that he constructed to inflict damage on another. The king gives Haman's house to Esther and Mordecai, and he places Mordecai now in Haman's position as second in all of the kingdom. He can't undo the decree that he's written, but he issues another edict and says to the Jews, please defend yourselves. Please defend yourselves on that day that they're going to attack you. And if they do, they rise up and they defend themselves against their enemies. And they have relief. And thus finishes the only book in the Old Testament where the word God or name of God is never used. In fact, there's no overtly religious language at all in this text, which has caused many to ponder as to why. Where is God in this text? The implication being that God is active among his people in a secular context. Isn't that good? Because don't you and I, don't we live in one of those? Can't we relate? As Christians living in a secular context, we are innately stuck in the middle, right? Maybe not in the back of a station wagon, grumpy and refusing to get out to look at the Grand Canyon, but we're still stuck in the middle of living between the now and the not yet, of living between a world where we are foreigners and strangers and aliens and looking forward to the world where we will one day belong where there will be no more tears. We are innately stuck in the middle, but, you know, we are not victims. We can either choose to be stuck in the middle and grumpy and bide our time until Jesus comes back, or we can engage that place that God has called us to, to stand in the gap on behalf of the oppressed. That's the call of Esther, and it's the call of our lives, and we can bring justice to the oppressed because... I look around and I look at my life and I see a group of people who have great, great privilege, great resources that God has entrusted to us, great places of responsibility and authority, meaningful relationships that we're engaged in. And the call of Esther's life is to acknowledge that we too have come to the place where we live and we work and we play for such a time as this. To stand in the gap. Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm sad to admit it that I have some of Haman's pride and superiority and prejudice in my own heart. I'm just going to tell my story. But I used to walk out of my condo complex, and I would see the gardeners at work there, and I would walk past as quickly as I could because I don't speak that great of Spanish, to be honest. Getting better. But uh, I didn't want to look stupid, as if they would say something to me and then I wouldn't know what to say in response. And so I would just walk past, 
And as a woman, I would also feel like, oh, man, they're kind of checking me out. And so I would just kind of keep my eyes down and motor past as quickly as I could and hurry to my air-conditioned office while they were working in the heat, where I was the executive vice president and chief of staff of MedBridge, where I still am. And I felt sorry for them, the kind of sorry that uh, dehumanizes someone. Sorry that they had to work outside in the blistering heat while I got to go to an office with people like me. Well, over the months and years, I felt increasingly called to engage with the oppressed in our city. And a group of us from this church began to ask the question, who are the oppressed in our city? And where are they? Where do they live? What is life like there? And over and over, I didn't like the answer much, to be honest, because I discovered that they're the people who live in the shadows of our city. They're the ones who work two to three jobs so their kids can go to school. They um, are farm workers in our city's janitorial staff. They work as maids in our hotels, and they wash our dishes after we eat good meals here in Santa Barbara. They paint our houses, and I walk past them each and every day, and God spoke to me and said, Ruth, you've been given power and privilege. And if you don't step up, if you don't use that power and privilege, you and your father's family will perish, because who knows Perhaps you've come to this place for such a time as this. And as we studied our city sociologically, as we looked, we discovered a neighborhood less than two miles away from this building, and, and Doug mentioned it. It's, it's the west side, and it's less than two miles from here. And it's a high poverty tract. In fact, it's the most densely populated tract in the city of Santa Barbara. And 25% of the households there are considered to be among the working poor. 70% are Latino. Three out of five kids from that neighborhood will graduate from high school, and there are only two health and human services in that neighborhood. That's a neighborhood that experiences injustice and oppression. And a group of us began every week to show up in a local park. It's a park that functions as a, as a community na- uh, backyard. There's not many backyards in that neighborhood because multiple families live in small apartments. And so this is the place where they have all the fiestas and celebrate quinceañeras and baptisms. And we began to show up every week with a soccer ball. And we're still playing soccer. In fact, this is a picture of us. We have an undefeated AYSO team that we've celebrated with you in the past. And uh, we're sharing community life together. We're seeking solidarity with that neighborhood. We're worshiping together, and we're building meaningful familia in the West Side. And you know what? It's been one of the greatest joys and spiritual transformations in my life. Thanks be to God. But I remember the first time that I was the only white person in a room filled with Latinos. It was dissonant for me because I'm not used to that situation. And I was invited by a friend from the neighborhood to experience a posada on the west side. It's a celebration of the nativity of uh, the, you know, Mary and Joseph knocking on different doors saying, let us in, can we stay here? We're about to have a baby. And this worship service in this small home, there was probably 50 of us all crammed in here. Again, I understood maybe one out of every 25 words. It was a worship service celebrating Jesus' life. And afterwards, the, the people that hosted this party graciously offered food for everyone, tamales and pasole. Oh, it was so good. 
experiencing the love of God in that setting. And the very next night, I was in my car driving down to Beverly Hills to celebrate with one of our surgery centers a fantastic year that we had had in business. And I showed up to this party, and it was very different. It was a 50s party, so everyone was dressed to the nines. There was music pumping, right? And everyone was already dancing, an open bar. And you go downstairs, and there's just a buffet of incredible food. Shrimp scampi and filet mignon and plastic surgeons pulling up and their Maseratis being parked by valets outside. And I thought to myself, good grief. Can I get more stuck in the middle than this? What do I do with this? One night, being the only white person in a room full of wonderful celebration with Latinos, and the next night, celebrating with plastic surgeons from Beverly Hills. And as I processed on the way home, I thought, I feel a little bit stuck in the middle here. But then I realized that I wasn't stuck in the middle. This was a conscious choice that I had made to say, I'm choosing to stand in the gap on behalf of the oppressed, to hold hands in both worlds, and to advocate for the oppressed with the resources and the power that God has given to me. Well, the reality is that we're called, all of us, to leverage what God has given to us. We all have gifts and talents that we've been given. And how can we be people who stand in the gap? Because every one of those gardeners that work outside of my house, they have a family and a story and a life and a calling. As do every neighbor that you live next door to. Every houseless individual in our community. Every immigrant. Every trafficked girl in our own city's hotels. Every coworker that you have. Every child that's living in Santa Barbara and abroad who is unloved. Every schoolmate in your classes. Every developmentally disabled person. And every elderly person that them finds themselves trapped in an assisted living facility. Everyone has a name and a story and a family and a calling. And we get to choose as God's people to stand in the gap on behalf of those whose God has put into our life. So as we close, I want you to ask the question, will I choose to stand in the gap? Where has God put me? And what has he called me to do to be like Esther for such a time as this to stand in the gap? Let's pray.